The reading this morning is taken from uh, Romans, starts at chapter 11, verse 33, and goes into chapter 12, verse 2. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. I'd like to begin by um, talking about my top five reasons why I think people struggle to worship. I've noticed uh, over the years being a minister that lots of people do struggle to worship. And so here's some reasons. First reason, uh, sometimes people are overly cerebral. So they can only engage on the level of ideas. They often will have a hobby horse that's their favourite topic that they want to talk about. And so... Um, when they come to church or their community group or whatever it is that they're doing that requires some kind of act of worship, they struggle because their posture is all wrong. They, the extent to which they get stirred is the extent to which the worship engages with their hobby horse topic. If it doesn't, then they're disengaged. So that most of the time they're a bit disappointed or annoyed. Here's the second reason. The person is overly emotional so the extent to which they can worship God is the extent to which they get all the feels, you know, you know the feels. Uh, so they want to come to church and they want to have some kind of ecstasy experience and they want to be on the heights. And uh, the problem with this, of course, is that um, human psychology is complex and so, uh, you know, you might have been up too late the night before or not had your breakfast or uh, need that coffee and that can all affect your emotional well-being. Also... Um, if you're a bit distracted, maybe the kids have been noisy in church or um, if the worship is focusing on a theme that they don't understand or care about, you don't get the feels and so you struggle to worship. Here's a third reason. A person can depend too much on serving. So these people only come to church if they're on the roster or, or, you know, or if they're required to be there for some reason. Um, so they only appear at community group if it's at their house and they're hosting, for example. They need a task, these people. They can't be there unless they're doing something. But when they serve, they don't necessarily serve out of love for God. They serve because they need to, they need to, to, to make an appearance. They do it out of duty, maybe out of guilt, maybe out of the idea that they need to be useful. They struggle to stop for a short period of time and just be still and be with God. Fourth reason, I reckon sometimes people are too focused on, their, on, them, on themselves. They struggle because they're forever thinking about how their needs aren't being met. They look around, they say, there's hardly anyone my age. There's hardly anyone from my culture. Uh, they want more people in the congregation to be like them, from their background. They want the songs to be from their songbook. 
They want uh, a community group to meet all their needs. And these people just struggle to worship for that reason. And the fifth reason, and this might be you right now, is that they can be too critical. <laughs> so there you go. You might, you might be suddenly feeling shocked because I was talking about you as you were thinking the critical thoughts. These are the Statler and the Waldorf, Waldorf of, the, of the church. You know those two old men that, in the Muppets that sit in the, in the top and they just look down and they just, at the end of the service, they've got comments to make about what was wrong. They, they're they're, they're the, the people who always pick holes in whatever is happening in, in the church community. They fixate on mistakes. You know, the sermon went five minutes too long. The service finished at 25 past instead of quarter past. The coffee's the wrong flavour. The prayers were too emotional, too formulaic, whatever it is. These people are too critical. Now, I could probably list five more things that, you know, cause people to struggle with worship. I'm not going to. Perhaps you fit into one of these categories. Perhaps you don't. Maybe it's easy for you. Um, but I suspect many of us struggle in different ways. Well, if this is the case, listen up. Because this morning as we look at the next section of Romans, uh, we're going to look at some key principles on what it means to um, worship well. After last week's long and complicated chapter of Romans, where Paul basically says that God has not abandoned the Israelites. In fact, he has this master plan that's way beyond our comprehension to, uh, to actually eventually bring them into the fold to, to build the, 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 the big oak tree he talked about through a, through a series of pulling some branches off, regrafting um, some branches in, grafting the Gentiles in, and um, a process of jealousy, making different, the Jews and the Gentiles jealous of each other, and eventually he's building his people. And it all gets quite complicated, this, this plan that Paul sort of explains for what God is doing with the Israelites. He's saying, trust in the sovereignty of God. He's got it all under control. Trust in his grace. And now, after searching his, his way through this complex theology that he's, he's uh, synthesized based on, on the scriptures, Paul is blown away by the gospel. And he, and he breaks onto this, what's called a doxology, this, this liturgy of worship. He says in verse 33, of chapter 11, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. And so this brings us to the first idea that I want to present to you, first point about how to make our worship good. And the first point is really obvious, but it's really important. Put God at the center of your worship. Paul breaks into this spontaneous worship and his first word, oh, now you know he's, he's, he's excited here. He's found the gold at the end of the rainbow. Oh, you know, oh, the depth of the riches. He's seen the masterpiece in the gallery. He's reached the top of the mountain. He's looked over the view and he's excited. He's discussed many facets of God. He's talked about God's love and his wrath, his mercy his faithfulness, his truthfulness, his sternness, his impartiality, his justice, his kindness. Paul's saying that there's nothing that can match God and his plan. He's, there's nothing that can match the gospel. Nothing is as extravagant. Nothing is as, as effective. Nothing is as intelligent. We look at the beauty of what God has done and our limited human brain can't really fathom it. 
And so he says this doxology, which is a, like a liturgical formula, a short hymn of praise. And Paul has several doxologies in the New Testament in his letters. This is the longest one. And, and he's saying it's not so much, the point of this doxology is not so much what God has hidden from us, but what he's revealed to us. God's hidden wisdom is present and revealed in the gospel. He places this doxology at the end of three chapters, talking about Israel and what God is doing. And he says, you know, the point of, of the wisdom of the gospel is what the ancient prophets sought after. And he starts to point to the ancient prophets. He quotes Isaiah 40, chapter 13, in, in, verse, in verse 34 of chapter 11. He says, Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? This is a quote from Isaiah 40. And this is a famous passage from Isaiah at the um, beginning of a long set of songs about how God will rescue Israel from exile and ultimately rule over the whole world. If you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, hopefully you have, you might remember the scene where the Olympic sprinter, Eric Little, reads the very next bit of Isaiah 40. He doesn't read those verses, but he reads the very next verse and a sort of selections from the, the second half of Isaiah 40, it's an emotional passage about how exciting God's plan is for the world. And, uh, you know, when you watch the movie, you, you are stirred and, and you see Eric Little worshipping through his running and joining that to, to, to the plans of God. Paul writes, Who has known the mind of the Lord? No one has. But now we have God's mind partially revealed to us in the gospel. Next, in verse 35, he quotes Job 41, verse 11, which says, who, ha who has ever given to God that God should repay them? This is from a famous section from the book of Job where God speaks to Job out of the storm and God asks Job over 60 questions about the sovereignty of God over the creator, created order and the impossibility of mortal minds to comprehend God. Job was a righteous man, a good and faithful man, but he experienced much loss and sickness and suffering, and yet he remained faithful. And he sought out God in his suffering, and God spoke to him. So this is another rhetorical question. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? The answer is no one. So as we read through Romans, we should remember that what we're seeing here is exactly what Job and Isaiah were meditating about. They were reaching out to God, reaching for the gospel. But now we get to marvel at it. And Paul is so excited, he's praising God. Verse 36, For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Everything comes from him, from God. Everything is created and sustained through God. Everything ends in God. He created all things to bring glory to himself. The letter to the Romans begun by lamenting that humanity should have worshipped God, our glorious creator, but instead we worship the created things, the lesser creatures. But now God has sent Jesus Christ who was raised through the glory of God so that those for whom he died and rose might share in God's glory. Now in this age of stress and anxiety and depression, there is a rise in the focus on uh, meditation and mindfulness. 
And there is certainly a place, I think, uh, for both, for Christians, especially meditation. If you look in the Bible, you will see lots of references to meditation. But I even think there's a place for mindfulness for Christians as well, even though it has its source in Buddhism. But the thing is with with this, we we don't want to enter into these practices uncritically. We don't want to sort of just put our mind at the door and just start practicing forms of spirituality without actually thinking about what we're doing. Because in effect, we could find ourselves in acts of worship or forms of worship that might not actually be Christian. And so what we must do is put God at the centre of all of our worship. We're to meditate slowly on the promises of God in the Bible or the songs and poetry of the Psalms or picture in our minds some of the stories of Jesus and meditate on that. To worship is to see the world with God at the centre. To worship is to direct our prayers to God. To worship is to enjoy the God who loves us. So if you want to be spiritually nourished, which I hope you do, if you want to connect with God, then focus your spirituality on the God of the Bible, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, one God. Put him at the centre of your worship. And then follow Paul's lead and then use the scripture as a, as a way to kind of guide that meditation and that mindfulness. Because at the centre of the scriptures is God. So if you use the scriptures, you'll have God as the centre of your practices. Joe and I, and also some of the staff, and maybe even some of the congregation, use an app uh, uh, called Pray As You Go. Anyone heard of Pray As You Go? A few people got their hands up. So check it out. It's a free app you can download. And every day on the app is a new contemplation. It comes out of England and you can play it. It goes for about 10 minutes and it's kind of a form of a... I think it's technically a contemplation, not a meditation. There is a difference, a technical difference, but it's sort of a similar idea. And there's space, there's music, there's um, uh, an introductory sort of... some introductory words and then a Bible reading and then some more words, and then another, and the Bible reading repeated. It's all done slowly, um, so you have time to reflect and meditate. And this meditation leads to contemplation. The the difference between meditation and contemplation is that meditation is a conversation with God in which it's all about my efforts. There's nothing wrong with that. You're searching out for God and you're doing things to reach him. And then contemplation is when you, you just receive from God. You just you just bask in his glory and you reflect. And it's, it's, it's sort of hard to explain the difference, but look it up you, in google.com and you'll find some explanations. doesn't really matter the difference. The point is that, you know, when, I, when we do this praise you go app, that it's fine, it's really helpful to do this. It's a deep awareness of God's infinite presence and mercy in us and around us. And this is what's happening to Paul here as he breaks out into spontaneous worship, contemplating the majesty of God. Now, obviously, if you want to really get into meditation, you've got to go beyond a, an app on your phone. That's pretty pathetic, isn't it, if that's what you do, um, if you really want to be into meditation. No, it's, not, it's not for everyone, but I highly recommend it. There's actually um, a, a great book which I've just discovered by the Australian Christian author Catherine Thompson called Christ-Centred Mindfulness. And uh, this book was published by the Bible Society... And she shows that in this current climate of modern psychology and pseudo-spirituality, yeah, Christians should be careful not to uncritically embrace 
mindfulness because it has its roots in Buddhism. And that the danger is you can blend the two, to Buddhism and Christianity together, and, not, and maybe not even practice Christian spirituality at all. And this will draw you away from the true God. But she also recognises a strong case that mindfulness can be adapted for the Christian, into Christian spirituality. And then, in fact, the meditation described in the Old and New Testaments is not far off. For example, after Moses died, Joshua took over, and God said to Joshua, Be strong and very courageous, being careful to act in accordance with all the law that my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, so that you may be successful wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to act in accordance with all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall be successful. I hereby command you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God tells Joshua he should be meditating on the Lord day and night. And that's the way he's going to be a great leader. He means speak quietly to yourself, the scriptures. Keep, it, keep a focus on God and um, let it absorb into you. Psalm 1 says, you know, we're to be like trees near the, the water, absorbing the water into us. To meditate on God this way will really transform you on the inside. There's a lot of detail to Catherine Thompson's book and she goes into how you can you really um, do this well. Now, I recommend you, if you want to, you know, worship God that way, to make sure that God is at the centre. Maybe you want to look at her book. Whether you're meditating, whether you're coming to church on Sunday, whether you're at your community group, whatever you're doing, whatever your act of worship is, keep God at the centre, and you can do that by using the Scriptures. The second idea I want to look at is to make our worship the total gift of God of ourselves. So Paul shifts from his focus of the adoration of God in the end of chapter 11 to the human response of self-sacrifice at the start of chapter 12, first two verses. And this marks a turning point in the book of Romans where we sort of start to head towards the land, the landing at the end of the, the book. The last section, um, it, go, it goes through to chapter 15, verse 13, and there's a bit more after that, where Paul, Paul focuses on application. He wants to outline how the, the Roman Christians are to live in a pagan world. And he begins in these two verses by calling them to internal heart transformation. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, these have become famous words in the New Testament and are often quoted. Um, but the hearers in the first century would have been a little bit sort of surprised because they're used to hearing the talk of sacrifice. But, you know, to sacrifice means to, to kill. And they're used to hearing the language of temple and they're used to hearing language of the priesthood. But here, he's using all this language without referring to those things specifically. He's applying it in a new way. When he talks about sacrifice, he's talking about Christian service. Peter does a similar thing when he talks about offering spiritual sacrifices, by which he means serving. And the writer to the Hebrews talks about a sacrifice of praise. In Philippians 2 verse 17, Paul talks about being in prison as being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. 
So picking up this wider Christian theme, Paul calls the Christians in Rome to offer their bodies as sacrifices to God. And they do this in view of God's mercy shown to them. They've been brought from death to life and they are an instrument of righteousness, as he has already said in Romans 6. But he really does mean here to offer your body as a sacrifice to God, to surrender it to him, to give up your own life. You now no longer live for yourself, but you live for God. Some of the Greco-Roman readers of this letter might have thought that the flesh was bad, the body was bad, that only spiritual things matter. But Paul is actually putting a lot of emphasis on the body, on the flesh, what you can do, what you can do with your lives. And he's saying, God wants your body. He wants you to use it for his glory. He wants you to give up your life, to put, carry your cross, to lose your life so that you may find it. He wants your life to be cruciformed, to be shaped like Jesus on the cross. And Paul's call here is practical. Now, at the beginning of the, of the sermon, I said um, that one of the problems people have sometimes with worship is that they can only engage if they're doing an action and I don't want to say that that's wrong that's that's good but there's a difference between what Paul's talking about and what I was talking about and the difference is that what Paul is talking about is that we should give God everything in response to his beauty and love shown to us in view of his mercy it's a it's a profound reversal of the life of sin is a quote from John Stott Paul made it plain in his exposure of human depravity in chapter 3, verse 1 of Romans, that it reveals itself through our bodies, in tongues which practice deceit, and lips which spread poison, in mouths which are full of cursing and bitterness, in feet which are swift to shed blood, and in eyes which look away from God. Conversely, Christian sanctity shows itself in the deeds of the body, So we are to offer different parts of our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. Then our feet will walk in his paths, our lips will speak the truth and spread the gospel, our tongues will bring healing, our hands will lift up those who have fallen, our arms will embrace the lonely and the unloved, our ears will listen to the cries of the distressed, and our eyes will look humbly and patiently towards God. The kind of sacrifice Paul is talking about here is startling. To sacrifice is to kill, but we're to be living sacrifices. So this means every day we take up our cross. Every day we bring our confessions to God. We put things down and we take a step forward towards Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 9, verse 23, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? So every morning, every week, every month, every year, you can forever pray, you can meditate, you can worship on Sunday and you can think about ways that you can lay down your life and bring your body as a sacrifice to Jesus. How you will put others first, how you will live sacrificially. Not to be a martyr, not to earn points with God, but in view of God's mercy shown to you. Maybe if it's helpful, you could imagine yourself standing or sitting before the cross on that green hill outside the city wall, staring into the eyes of Jesus as he died in your place. Now spend the rest of your life 
offering your body as a living sacrifice in response to that. You're not doing this to please others. You're doing it to please God. As Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, we're not trying to please men but God who tests our hearts. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we've been changed from those who have been hostile to God to people who desire to love and serve God. If you've said yes to being a disciple of Jesus, God is pleased with you as God's children. We long to please the God who is pleased with us. As a father, I look at my boys and, you know, trying to live their lives as a five-year-old and an eight-year-old, struggling with different things, making mistakes, having, being like emotional roller coasters, being selfish sometimes and other times being really generous. And, you know, I'm lo- I love them and pleased with them no matter what. And, you know, when I see them being creative, it gets me excited and I'm so happy for them. The other day I went, went to see Ezra's prep concert, the North Fitzroy Primary prep concert. And I saw him trying to perform all the songs. He's dressed as a butterfly on the stage with all of his prep class, doing the moves and, you know, singing the songs. And it doesn't matter to me whether he gets the songs right or whether he gets the dance moves wrong It doesn't, I don't care. I still love him and I'm pleased with him anyway. I love him because he's my son. I'm already pleased with him. And Ezra knows knows that I love him, I hope, whether he gets it perfect or not. Nevertheless, he still tries to do it well, doesn't he? He still tries to perform for his parents. He wants them to think he's done a good job. And so it is with God and his view of you. He's pleased with you already. He loves you already. And yet, because we want to serve him, we we try and please him, but we do that in the knowledge that he already loves us. This is what it means to live in such a way, to offer our body as a living sacrifice. And the last way we can worship is to make our worship the overflow of our transformed minds. So we've put God at the centre. We've offered our bodies as a living sacrifice. And now thirdly, we make our worship the overflow of our transformed minds. Chapter 12, verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. We need a transformed mind. He contrasts two patterns, the pattern of the world, which you can see, that was the image on the, on the front cover of the booklet. The pattern of the world, which is a... Uh, um, Actually, not actually the map of the world, but it's the things, the worldly things of this world and the pattern of God's will. And we need to know the difference between these two patterns. We need to reject the thinking and the behaviour that is in the pattern of the world. We need to embrace God's pattern for Christian living. To transform comes from the word metamorpho, like the word metamorphosis, like when a caterpillar metamorphizes or transforms into a butterfly. That's not the right word, is it? Our heart needs to become a spiritual butterfly. Paul uses this same word in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. This is not just about outward conformity, but inward transformation. Then when this inner transformation has occurred, we will have the tools to be able to test the will of God, as it says in verse 2. 
You need wisdom and goodness to be able to do this. If you want to know the will of God for your life, which everyone does, everyone's always asking that question, what does God want for me? Then put God at the centre of your worship by using the scriptures in your worship and offer your bodies as living sacrifices, giving of yourselves. And then you'll experience the inner transformation of your mind and you'll be able to discern God's will. Your mind will be renewed. Your mind will be filled with the truth of the gospel. The truth of God's word will dwell in you richly, as Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 16. It's an intellectual point he's making, but it's a spiritual point as well. Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 23 that we are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. In other words, the Holy Spirit is going to totally change your thinking. You get a new operating system from operating system human to operating system Jesus. That's amazing. Your imagination will be shaped and captured by Christ. So to conclude, the Roman Christians had to learn to live in a pagan world and we need to learn to live in a pagan Australia, a post-Christian pagan Australia. And this begins by living lives of worship. And to do this, we must follow Paul's lead by putting God at the centre of our worship, by offering our bodies as living sacrifices and by making our worship come from the overflow of our transformed minds. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that as a church we will not struggle with our worship but that we will um, follow Paul's lead and um, we will live lives focused on you and uh, where we daily confess our sins and we make sacrifices in response to the mercy that you've shown to us. We pray for transformed minds in our congregation so that we will know your pleasing will. Amen.